This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and it's kind of the end of the year. It's a pretty good time, I think, to think about the coming calendar year since we all seem to be operating off of calendar years for some some reason that I can't fully comprehend uh, other than the tax code tells us to and corporations tell us to. Um, but it is a good time to sort of refresh and think about things, including your investments, uh, kind of your career and money making and risk that's involved in all of that and how to think about it. So for, for a topic like that, you need somebody super smart who can talk about it. That's why John Stevens is with me. John, thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So for the people who don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself? So uh, my name is John Stevens, and I'm currently an advisor to step down as CEO at TCI Wealth Advisors in Tucson. Um, previously, I was a primary care physician, a practiced internal medicine and pediatrics, and now about 25 plus years ago, completely changed careers uh, and made a transition into wealth management. So that's the quick summary of who I am. Brent. You got out of the insurance game, John. <laughs> I did. And it was actually because of a medical insurance merger that I was kind of afforded the luxury to think about changing careers. So. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. We'll have to, we're going to have to circle back to that in yes. a minute here. But, um, well, I, since I, since I teed this up, I'm going to let you hit it. And that is, you know, people are probably trying to think about the markets and what the markets do and then how to view their risk exposure, just in, at least in broad terms and maybe we can get into more of the details like how do you frame that for yourself or maybe for your clients well i really frame that in, in in a pretty academic way so when i changed careers and was studying for my chartered financial analyst designation some of the study material had you really look at and understand risk how to measure risk in the markets. It's very geeky. It's kind of the standard deviation is the definition of risk. But when I was preparing, it really captured me that I want to be pure in defining volatility, which is kind of short-term market movement versus long-term risk. Uh, and depends on how well I know clients, I sometimes say, you know, the Risk is defined as, you know, you haven't accomplished what you wanted to accomplish in your lifetime. That's a very huge time horizon versus volatility is what did the market do today kind of stuff. And the, the surprising thing, and sometimes I challenge clients, is to lower your overall risk of not accomplishing what you want to have accomplished in your life you probably need to take on some volatility in the market, you know. So I think that's the approach and kind of the academic, the physician in me has approached it from that scientific background. So those are right. some of the discussions I internally have with myself 
externally have when I'm teaching and presenting and try and be a purist when I use those words precisely. Volatility doesn't equal risk in all situations. And I think I've heard you say or describe it, which I thought was a interesting way to think about it as risk. The, the downside on risk is zero. So like that's the worst case scenario is zero. So you're really playing to zero. And it turns out that you can add a lot of volatility and not get to zero. Right. Yeah. So can you can you explain how why is that? <laughs> why is that the case? Because it doesn't, I think, always strike reason, even though it's true. So, so ask ask it again, Brent. So how how is that? How is it true? How is it that you can in fact take on quite a lot of volatility and you don't? It doesn't lead to maximum risk, which would be zero. You have right. no money. Right. Well, there's an interesting thing. And again, when I kind of made the transition into wealth management and understand markets and and, and those sorts of stuff, um, there's a Nobel Prize winning economist, Harry Markowitz, who kind of won a Nobel Prize for looking exactly at kind of risk and return stuff. So in the far corner, he has the, you know, no risk, you know, no volatility type investment, the, you know, the short-term U.S. treasuries. And then at the far other extreme is, you know, small cap emerging market kind of international stuff. Lots of volatility, but an overall higher expected return. What he won a Nobel Prize for was connecting those dots. And again, you don't win Nobel Prizes for connecting two dots with a straight line and realized that's too bad. It's yeah, I know. I know. We, you and I might be have, on the path for one. Exactly. He, what he defined and mathematically showed is when you add some equities, which have day-to-day volatility, to your very safe U.S. treasuries or cash, the, your your volatility actually improves. So the in theory, the risk goes down until it finally arcs around and now starts to go, the more equities you add above a certain point, of course, the more volatility and risk, and that's a pure choice. But he wins the Nobel Prize for mathematically saying, you know, there is kind of a sweet spot for lower volatility where you look at your risk, your return per unit of risk. Yeah, and I think the maybe the, the punchline to that is that zero risk in under his model, zero risk does not mean zero equities. Right. That zero risk actually is something that includes equities or is close to zero. It's it's almost like an, an ascent of like it never really reaches yeah, exactly. perfect, exactly. right? Yeah. Uh but but as close to zero risk as you get actually includes some some equities and some volatility. Right. Right. And again, intuitively, and now having just gone through this higher higher inflation rate environment, we know it. In, you know, the zero volatility is if you have your money sitting in a corner, it's not going to fluctuate. But we know purchasing power. So the loss of purchasing power, the reinvestment risk, um, those sorts of things. Bob Swift, the, the the founder of TCI years ago, kind of came up with, he met a lady, you know, back at some point, you know, interest rates had moved up. They were like four or five, six percent, you know, on a million dollars. She could get 60,000. She says, that's it. I don't want any risk, she said. 
Uh, I'll just put it in CDs. Well, then, you know, market, you know, the interest rate plummets. She comes in years later saying it's like, well, now interest rates are down to less than 1%. I can't live on that, his point was. Oh, I guess there was a risk you hadn't thought about. <laughs> right. You you were just thinking of volatility, which you min- minimized. But now you have a risk. So. Yeah. Well, I want to give you a little bit of props here because you mentioned one thing that I think teases out a uh, an inaccuracy sometimes in the way that these things are described in your industry broadly. Um, which is you you mentioned the risk is you didn't do the things in your life that you wanted to be able to do. That's that's actually the risk, because I think it's it's which I think is a great way to think about it and the correct way to think about it, because ultimately you're dealing with human beings here. Uh, but oftentimes in, in your industry, it's not to say the lawyers are blameless on all accounts here. I'm not trying to um, absolve us of all blame in in all instances, but sometimes in your industry, um, for example, success will be measured against certain uh, financial benchmarks, and which is a cute way to kind of try to come up with pluses and minuses on a board. But of course, those benchmarks are not human beings. And you're talking about human beings. And those two things are just not the same. Yep. No. That that has been having having been a primary care physician, having done this now for a long time, having made a career change for for other than financial purposes, for kind of quality of life, continuing to do these. It is one of the most enjoyable parts of my job is getting people to understand that it's not a competition to see who dies with the most money at the end wins. It's have you done what you want to do to find what is important to me and then make sure you're using your resources, your assets, your time to accomplish those things. So yes, that is very fun when I come in and I kind of tell clients sometimes like, no, you need to go do this traveling, which is so important to you. You have your health now. We don't know if that will be there as you get older. If that's very important, please do those things now. We'll figure it out. Uh, again. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have a somewhat similar conversation with clients who are like ultra, ultra high net worth. And particularly the next generation who maybe didn't didn't make the money or weren't really involved. And I think I can see sometimes they have a, almost a little bit of embarrassment by the amount of money. And usually what I tell them is something similar to what you're saying is that, well, look, you're in a fortunate position, which is great. But just think of this thing as a thing that will support you to do what you actually enjoy in life what you're actually passionate about and then go do that thing and focus on that passion or that thing that you actually enjoy because focusing on the money is not going to make you happy. Right. And it's not the point either. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned changing careers. So you have to tell, you can't just leave us hanging. So you have to tell us this story, especially because you teed it up as, uh, as a quality of life as well. So now we have to know what was, uh, bad quality of life as a physician and good quality of life as a financial advisor. So um, I, was, I was a partner at Thomas Davis Medical Centers here in town, which was kind of a larger multi-specialty group uh, and ultimately got bought by a insurance company, Foundation Health, back in the mid-90s, 
uh, some of this was happening uh, and and had, I will describe it as a liquidity event. So as one of the partners, a big insurance company comes in and buys out, we owned a insurance company and a medical practice. Um, so it, it gave me a an ability to say, hmm, this is interesting. The trigger was, it was Halloween. My kids were probably five and three. So a very exciting Halloween for a young father and two daughters. And I was getting ready to leave my my office and the office manager, same office manager had been there forever, kind of said, well, where are you going? And I said, what do you mean? I, I'm going home. It's Halloween. The kids, I'm going to trick or treat with the girls. And they said, and she said, well, the new company policy is we have to have a physician in the office from eight to five. I'm like, but I don't have any patients. I'm the only one in the office and I have no patients coming in. She said, well, that's corporate policy. And I kind of thought to myself, hmm, that's not the kind of quality of life I want to have. So again, it was Halloween. I couldn't get there. Kind of had this, this idea of changing careers. And again, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I was stepping back. And actually, my wife encouraged me to go, hey, why don't you go get your MBA? You've always loved school. And, you know, kind of the the rest is history as I had a finance professor encourage me down a path of getting my charter financial analyst designation. Uh, I met Bob Swift. So the rest is history. Interesting. All because of one corporate policy. They basically be- pushed you out of the industry because of one stupid corporate policy. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Amazing. Let that be a lesson to all the managers out there. Don't have stupid policies. Don't have inhumane, uh, stupid policies. So you uh, you mentioned getting your MBA and then getting uh, sitting for the CFA exam and meeting Bob Swift. What was that meeting like? What? Why was that sort of a, a fork in the road for you? Well, um. That fork in the road, so after having this kind of liquidity event, so kind of having way more assets than I ever expected, I also then was told, is like, hey, you need to go do some real estate planning and get a real plan. And that uh, that attorney, uh, who happened to be Gordon Waterfall here in town, who was- The Gordon uh, Waterfall. The Gordon Waterfall, yes. kind of said, it's like, John, you have to go hire somebody. You don't just do this on your own anymore. And I want to introduce you to Bob Swift. So I met Bob Swift, who kind of, uh, you know, hired him to help do some things. And and it was a few years later when I was kind of getting my CFA designations, one of the annual meetings, I'm like, Bob, so I have an interesting question for you. So I'm going to pass these exams because I'm pretty sure I, I will pass these tests. But in order to get the designation, you need work experience to go along with that. And I don't have work experience in this industry. Would you be willing to? And he loves to tell this story. So he's like, wait, so you need work experience and I don't need to pay you because I kind of know where your financial situation is. You know, we shake hands. He's like, dude, welcome aboard. And that's the best deal he's ever made. (laughs) Truly is how it started. So, yeah, free labor. Yeah, free labor. Free labor. Well, I I didn't stay free forever, but uh, hopefully point, not. Uh, but but certainly the the transition there um, was was fun, and he 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 loves to tell that story. 
Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's well, it's a good way to do it. You know, if you want to if you want to pursue anything in life, you you want to stand next to somebody who knows how to do it. Right. And if you have to do it for free for a time, you might as well. Right. So before De Niro made the young that intern movie, I actually was an unpaid. You were the intern. Too, so I, yeah. I will always now refer to you and De Niro in the same positive light, no matter what. Why, thank you. Why, thank yes, you. You're welcome. My, my pleasure. So I have a um, I have a nephew who's currently getting a finance degree. He's almost graduated and he's thinking about going into uh, financial planning or Something along those lines. I don't think he has fully formulated it in his mind, but let's assume somebody like him, good student, they're doing finance. You know, maybe you go down to the U- University of Arizona and you meet some students. What are the sorts of things you tell them about getting into the industry? And do you think it's different because you have a co- sort of non traditional entry point into the industry? It's sort of two questions, but. So, I- I think the first, as I'm talking to as I'm talking to young people thinking about getting into this industry, the first thing I emphasize is it it doesn't have to be all about the finance. So you don't have to be honors in finance. It's not all about the math. A whole lot of what I do is really coach clients and help. So I need to be a good. I need to have good communication skills. I need to be a good listener. For young people, I think it's important for them to understand the different the different paths into this career. You know, kind of we oftentimes the careers divided into or the industries divided into dif- different categories. One is commission based kind of selling versus fee only. So that's one thing to look at. Uh, and then the other is where you can get some training. So again, our industry is starting to mature and grow into a, a true industry. Um, but where you can kind of get trained and or find a firm where you could be an intern, um, some of the big, the vanguards, the Schwabs, the dimensional fund advisors, they have great programs, as do some of the bigger wirehouse programs. So if you want to get really good training, may not be where you stay for your whole career if you want to be more end client facing um, can be there. So I think that's where I start with people. And then the most common designation for young people is I think you'll want to be a CFP, a certified financial planner. Um, You know, the CFA, which I also have, I don't use it. It's good academics. You know me. I'm a learner. I had no problem kind of diving in there, but it's not what I do use day to day. I think that's I think it's actually kind of similar to the legal profession in that you you need good training. You need uh, you need good academics. You need to learn the nuts and bolts of how to do the thing that you're doing, both on the sort of the artistic side of doing it and right. then on the more scientific side of doing it, so to speak. And then I actually think for most lawyers, they they become the best version of lawyers when they start reading up on human behavioral psychology and getting really good at reading people and understanding human behavioral psychology. Because like you're saying, there's a lot of coaching people. And of course, you're dealing with confrontational parties and people in high stress situations 
but to have an understanding of, oh, this is, they're having a reaction here that's a normal human, emotional, psychological reaction. So it can be put in its proper place and understood. It's not quote unquote crazy, you know, and then help coach people through that and then help coach clients through that. In my industry is invaluable. Right. And people who can do it, you can see they do really well. And people who just can't do it are like bulls in China shops. Yep. No, I, I, com- I completely agree. And I think it will, it, it's part of as I, you know, not retiring, but thinking of kind of the, the third chapter, as it were, um, kind of teaching that humanism. It's not about the technical analysis. I, I, I love to share when I'm meeting with prospects or new clients or even describing what I do. Some of, some of the best value I think I create for clients is when it starts with a question from them or a call. It's like, John, I don't know if this has anything really to do about my finances, but can you help me with, it's really an ask, it's a ask to just be a human, help be a thought mm-hmm. partner, help guide me, coach me, push back when needed. Um, that part's fun. And yeah. you're exactly right. That is, that is, I, I know it's what excites you. It's what continues to excite me, but it it doesn't get taught in the traditional didactic course to get here. That's really true. And I, I have some sympathy for it because so if you, if you take, for example, medical training or or legal training, there is a particular outcome to that training that has to be tested. I mean, you have to, in, in some sense, train people to pass a test so that they can then be licensed to do what they have to do. And that that sucks a lot of room, a lot of uh, oxygen out of a room. You don't have time to talk about behavioral psychology, at least in the legal profession. That's very true. In law school, they don't talk about it. Um, but it's, but then once you get into practice, of course, because you're dealing with humans, that's almost all it is. The technical piece is still really important. Right. It's just that the person you're serving cares so much less about the technical piece and so much more about the human piece that the conversation between like you and say people in your business and you and the client are like two completely different conversations. Right. Exactly. Yep. Is that a surprise to you, by the way, coming from sort of a, a medical background, is it a surprise to you to find that in financial planning? It, there was a part of financial planning that was very surprising to me when I changed, when I made the switch and understood medicine, I understood the academics, a double-blind controlled study, all of that sort of stuff. I understood that. I didn't realize that there was a a similar academic-paced, Nobel Prize-winning, PhDs in finance kind of mapping out investment strategy, diversification, low cost, those sorts of things. Um, I envisioned back before I changed careers, you know, Money Magazine, you know, who's the stock picker of the year, who was the best mutual fund manager of the year. It seemed like that was there. It was refreshing to me to say, wait, there's a science to this? Oh my gosh, I'm gonna love this. And then like I knew from medicine, so much of how clients see their physician was that bedside manner, was that ability to listen. Um, they had very good technical skills, but on the, you know, on the best doctor, there's a lot of the how good a communicator, relator, how good a human were they? And nice to see that carried over. 
Yeah, I imagine so. Well, John, I could talk to you about this uh, all day long, but I also know you have like a life and a family and other things to do. So um, if people are trying to find you, what's the best way for them to do that? I think the best way is to go to our website, TCI uh, Wealth Advisors, uh, uh, is find us in uh, offices in, you know, Tucson, Scottsdale, Flagstaff, Denver, Reno, um, but we're all doing the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, that's all right. probably the easiest. Super. No. Yeah, no problem. Should be easy for people to find. I'll put it. I'll put the link in the show notes, too, so they can find you there. John, uh, always fun to chat with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.